Hi, I'm Jill Wright, founder and CEO of Executive Shine. And on behalf of myself and my phenomenal guests, we want to welcome you to Executive Shine Soul to Soul Conversations. I am so honored to bring you some of the world's most fascinating and dynamic leaders who often only have one thing in common, uncommonly outrageous positive impacts on people and businesses. They are leaving this world a much better place. So kick back and join us. Grab a few insights you can immediately apply to leverage your leadership and foster greater authentic connection in a world that's become increasingly disconnected. We so desperately need you to shine your light bright. Enjoy. Welcome, everyone. I'm so excited tonight to be able to bring you someone I adore. And not because of all the accomplishments that she's done, because she has so many, but for who she is as a human being. So I'm going to read you this amazing bio because it's too long for me to even memorize. So Simone Ross is our guest tonight. And she's a Colorado native. She grew up in Park Hill. And she had a great upbringing that really instilled in her a strong sense of the importance of community, family, and building, and investing in the success and dreams of one another. So we are so lucky to have her. And in an effort to catalyze change elevate and add visibility to issues of workforce equity and operationalize inclusivity in business, Simone founded her own firm, Simone Ross LLC. And she is a, does consulting with a vision of catalyzing human thriving through effective and integrative change management. So she uses her 15-year experience from corporate to crystallize business operation strategy and to bring a voice to the importance of creating equitable and sound enterprises. She also brings a refreshing voice and insight to many events as a CEO of SDR events, which I participate in because she's fabulous. And she facilitates inspiring experiences, content, and presentations to, and we're going to talk more about this, ignite the light in the participants at the events she hosts. She's also the founder and CEO of Youth United University, and I want to talk more about that too, an anti-racist education program for kids grades six through eight. And through her extensive career, she's led expansion operations in Denver and Minneapolis for the Riveter. She worked in mergers and acquisitions as director of strategic business initiatives at SCL Health, founded and operated the Spring Rock Dental and Health Operation, a subsidiary entity of Delta Dental, you might be familiar with that, and pioneered Kaiser Permanente's business development and market expansion efforts. So 
I had to read this because it was so extensive. <laughs> Simone holds a Master of Arts and a Master of Business Administration degree from our famous Colorado State University. And she has been recognized by the Denver Business Journal as 40 under 40 business leader, the Colorado Women's Chamber as one of the top 25 most powerful women, the Association of Corporate Growth as a David Sloan Business Scholar, and was recognized by the Colorado Black Chamber of Commerce as a community service champion, and I'm not done. She is graduate of Leadership Denver, the Colorado State Chamber of Commerce, CACI Executive Leadership Program, and is the Urban Leadership Foundation Chamber Connect alum. But she is most proud of her two amazing children. And she is motivated, as we all are, by watching them grow, thrive, fearlessly create, and explore the world. So tonight, we are so lucky to have her as a guest on our show. So welcome, Simone. Thank you so much, Jill. I'm sitting here blushing because I'm like, wait, who is she even talking about? I'm just, <laughs> I'm just here, scrappy entrepreneur trying to make a difference. But I appreciate you even taking the time to read that. <laughs> well, I want people to know because yes, you do have that scrappy entrepreneur inside you that's made you able to achieve all these things and. That's the thing I want people to understand is that you are a real person and you've gone through all kinds of struggles and overcome them on a regular yeah. basis. Yeah, hundred percent. You know, and that takes real courage. And so talk to me about some of the things, what are you most proud of? Oh my goodness. Okay. So I feel like when you say your kids, like, it's like, womp womp, everybody's proud of their kids. So okay. that aside, <laughs> I do that aside, right. It's cause we, that's a given. Um, what am I most proud of? Um, you know, I, I'm most proud of, um, just continuing to get, get back up. Right. Cause sometimes you hear these bios and I say this all the time on beyond the bio, like you'll hear these bios and sometimes you can kind of forget that, um, there were a lot more no's than yeses. Cause in the bio, it's like a portrait of yes. The bio's not a snapshot of no and disappointment or even just having to regroup. And so um, I'm most proud of um, just like that, that, that getting back up um, even when it's hard and just, you know, really doing the work that it takes too, right. From the knockdown. Right. Cause sometimes you have to like convalesce a little bit. You have to, go inward and you know that can be dark and that can be hard and so um you know I'm really proud and probably present time I'm really proud of what I'm building with my business um you know for a long time I worked in the private sector and that's what I did for large entities was help them build build their businesses and and live their missions and so when I decided to exit um the private sector it was daunting. And, and I exited really kind of under duress. Like we can't not speak about the realities and the statistics. We know that 50% of women of color are 
considering leaving their corporate jobs. And that's because there's a lot of workforce violence. And that's how I term it. That happens to us when, when we're at work. And so at the point that I exited, um, it was really like, there's, there's no place for me. I have no place to belong. And certainly I, I wanted to do my, my, my own thing. And I've always been entrepreneurial because companies hired me to kind of be their entrepreneurial brain. Um, but, but really I left and I was like, well, okay, just for the sake of your mental health, for the sake of your family and for your kids, um, you know, you've, you've, you've got to start your own thing and it's got to work. Um, and the beauty of that has been the opportunity to like, look at myself and say, well, what are your values? What do you say yes to? What do you say no to? What do you go after? What impact do you want to make on, on the business enterprises that you're advising and consulting with? And, you know, when they do ask you for advice, where is that coming from? And so it comes from a holistic view of lived personal experiences, um, possessing the identities of being a black um, woman who is a first generation college educated black woman. And so that comes with a lot um, being a mother who's single because my kids have an amazing active father, but still being a mother who is single and managing that. And so, you know, how do you want to reshape business um, to look like you and others like you? And, and so that's, that's what I'm most proud of is, um, creating business and creating solutions um, where there is an identity and where humanity exists and having that choice to only work with clients that want to create businesses that, that share that same scope. Well, and that share your values. And, and like you said, there's a lot of women um, of all colors out there right now, really contemplating, what am I doing here? Yeah. Am I able to make the impact? Is this what, is this my soul's work? Is this why I'm, I'm here on earth to make this impact? And can I do it here or do I need to develop something on my own? And, And how can I maintain my values and be able to make a living and build a business? you know, all of those things. And you've been really successful in that, but it's based on who you are as a human being. And so tell me about what, what helped you, you know, you mentioned getting back up and I think that's a really powerful statement. What helped you have the, the guts to get back up? when those things knock you down? Cause I know that a lot of things have knocked you down too. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's confronting fear and it's really, it's the gift and curse about how my funny brain works is that I am a very black and white and analytical person. And so, you know, I'm like, it's this, like I communicate in a very direct way. I'm like, well, this is what it is. <laughs> and so I even talk to myself that way too. And so it's like, okay, well, what knocked you down? Um, and, and I'm kind of do a very critical analysis about, well, what was it that happened? Um, you know, well, what do you want to own in that? Like, what was your cause in the matter? And taking that, picking it apart, not to the point of obsession, although it has been like that at times, but picking it apart, right? Like, what's your cause in the matter? What's the truth about this narrative and what it says about you and who you are? And then also, what is something that you can't even own? Um, and then saying, well, okay, so you're down. What are you afraid of um, getting back up? Is it rejection? Is it, I'm getting kicked again. 
Um, and then it's putting that stuff into perspective. So like when you got kicked, how bad did it hurt? Yeah, it hurt, but can you live through it? Yeah, you can actually. It's like, but did you die? <laughs> no, you didn't. Um, and you know, you're, you're stronger for it. And so it's really for me kind of breaking those things apart, analyzing them and then saying, okay, so if this is the thing, you know, as far as business goes, if this is the thing you're most afraid of, which obviously usually when starting it's income, right? It's like, yeah. you know, then, then problem solving and saying, so what is the thing that you need to um, satiate that fear? So it's like, okay, so then you're, as you're starting, you probably need to seek um, a longer term, larger contract and then grow around that and really putting, I'm an ops person. So then you put, I put things and levers in place to say, okay, this is, this is the model for what you need for right now. And now let's grow around that model. And so, well, now I'm like running four companies, but um, you know, it's really around doing that intensive problem solving, taking um, the emotion out of it completely. And it's like, okay, it's not saying don't feel, but it's saying, let's take the emotion out, let's problem solve. Um, and so now we know you're gonna get back up. You've confronted the things that you're most afraid about when you do get back up and now we've problem solved. So you're afraid of you know, not having income. Well, now you know what you need to go after. Um, put a timeline on it, put a project plan around it. That's what my clients hire me to do and, and make it happen um, in a meaningful way that where you're filling the gaps, solving the hard problems for your clients, you know, for yourself and, and just kind of making it work, um, kind of using that framework. And um, it's kind of what I do. Um, but again, it's a process, right? Like I'm saying it like all like la la, like do do do. I get up, I do the strategic analysis. Yeah. A part of that strategic analysis too is like being like, oh, this hurts. Like, oh, this has me really messed up in the head right now. And so a part of that too is figuring out like, how can I get better? Um, meaning like emotionally, like how do I heal? Or meaning, you know, what do I own? What do I let go? Um, how am I showing up in this space of hurt? Because sometimes when you're hurting and not well, um, you sometimes bring, put that on other people. Um, and so also ensuring that, that, that stuff is happening too on the back end. Yeah. And that's, you're talking about like powerful self-awareness and also personal responsibility for those things yeah. and, and taking responsibility for, okay, I attracted this, what went well, what can I learn from this? How can I stand up again? What am mm -hmm. I fearing? Is that really a, a relevant fear? And, and really, you're talking about a lot of compassion for yourself as well, which it, it you, you, I, I say something like you be what you want to see. Yeah, and you really are. That's you show up as a courageous compassionate, resilient person who really, you really do. And that's why I have so much respect for you. And you embody, you talked about those values a little bit that you built and that you bring into your business. For, for people just hearing this, there's so many people out there that just, just wake up in the morning and just go do what they think they have to do to make ends meet. And they don't think about how can I, how can I do this work and incorporate my values and mm -hmm. what are my values and really taking time to say, 
what's important to me and what's going to be life nurturing for me so that I then have, then I don't burn out because I think that happens to a lot of women, women in particular, I think are really givers. And so we give everything we've got. And so how did you establish those values and those boundaries mm-hmm. that, that keep you, uh, keep you whole? Yeah. Well, I, I think one, you have to understand that I, for me, at least, I think values can, can change. Right. And so when I was young in my career, the things that, that I valued are, are a little bit different now that I'm more seasoned and I'm getting more seasoned day by day. And I think those values kind of shift and change. And then there's also external factors that shift and change. And so, you know, in this, in this phase, in this chapter, you know, I've, I've identified them clearly. My values are um, women in work, um, communities of color um, and equity and sustainable business. Like those are my values. And so it then becomes very clear to draw boundaries because it's like, okay, well, this is the ask. Well, does it impact women in work? Does it impact communities of color? You know, does it impact equity? Does it impact um, sustainability um, as I define it? And it's like, okay, if the answer is no, then it's probably something that that I don't need to put time and attention into. Um, and even, you know, as I, as I speak about what I do, you know, the, the main thing people say, so you, you work in diversity, equity, and inclusion. I'm like, I don't, I work in strategic operations. Um, and you know, it's like, okay, that goes back to my sustainability, um, value where I believe that the only way that businesses will be sustainable is through strategic operations. And I believe that equity is a core tenant, um, and a key business imperative that's actually operational because we've been doing, we've been housing equity work with, with in the HR department since we first rolled out diversity. Um, and it's, we've not made an impact because it's always been this push pull. You've got the, the, the diversity committee, or you've got diverse hires, but operationally, you've not actually looked at the system and how your business operates and then the ways that it operates that's inequitable, inequitable and prevents people from moving up the promotion ladder or feeling psychologically safe to contribute at 100%. Um, and there's so many processes, right? When we look at racism, it's a system. Well, that system is ingrained in how we operate. So, you know, even that, you know, when people say, so what do you do? I'm like, I do strategic operations and equity is a part of it because if you want a sustainable business, equity needs to touch every single area of your organization. And that's inclusive of HR, but it's not an HR functionality. And so, you know, that's how I define my work. That's how I define who I want to help, the ways I want to help them. And then kind of also kind of being their docent um, and coming along with me. Um, on the journey and saying, okay, do you buy into this? Because if you don't, then obviously, you know, you're not the right, um, the right person for us to, to partner together. But um, let's, if, if you can buy into it, and if you believe it authentically, then we can work together. And I guarantee you, we're going to change business and impact business significantly. Yeah, that's amazing. Give, can you give me some examples of that? Because I agree with you. And I love the fact that you have that operational lens instead of just an HR lens, because the operational is, is where I think it breaks down because yeah. they have this great idea in HR, but then it's not impl- imp- 
impact implemented make sure yeah. my tongue in all the aspects and so i think that's fascinating that you can look at that and look at those systems and put that into place so talk to me a little bit about that cuz i think that's really interesting so you know it's it's interesting because it looks different in each business unit right um supremacy culture, dominant culture is present in different ways in every single thing we touch. Simple things, right? I review employee handbooks. There's typically no anti-racism and psychological safety policy. You've got a code of ethics and conduct, which typically covers um, social media posts. It might cover dress code. Um, It might cover, um, you know, things like that. Nine and a half times out of 10, even in the employee handbook in the code of conduct and ethics at any company, there's not anything that says, um, I will work to control my implicit bias every single day. I will stay away from um, microaggressions towards my coworkers. Um, I will ensure I'm doing everything in my power as a leader and as a peer um, to ensure that within the performance review process, I'm not placing my bias to the detriment of other people. That there, there's no policy that says that. And that's an operational thing, right? Yeah. That's 100% an operational thing. Um, you look at boards of directors. They've got their conflict of interest policy. That's a big deal for boards of directors. But not even a board of directors says that there's no policy about equity and anti-racism saying that I am responsible, uh, a key accountability I have serving in this very important role of leadership is ensuring that I'm overseeing this company. And we want to make sure that we are retaining um, and and diverse talent. And we want to make sure that we've got an environment that's psychologically safe. And so it's something even that simple, right? Um, Where it's saying we're seeing equity in every functionality of everything. It's, um, you know, looking at the spaces that we're in now, do we have gender neutral restrooms? Think about how traumatic that can be for someone who's non-binary to have to be put in a box each time they have to go to the restroom. Think how many times when we were going to work that you go to the restroom in a day. So imagine the trauma, maybe two, three, four, five times a day that someone who's non-binary has to face and still come back and contribute a hundred percent um, in work. And it's just, again, things we're not thinking about, um, with equity and that's not an HR function you got to talk to the facilities person about that. Right. Right. And so it's getting everybody, um, and and these are just very, very simple things. You know, it's, are we, are we auditing, doing peer audits of performance reviews? Can we have a culture that's that transparent? So at the point that Steve and Mary who do the same job, um, virtually the same performance, right. They, They both meet expectations. What's in Steve's performance review? Does it say you need to increase your your close ratio by 2%? It probably does. Mary's probably says something like, you should be kinder to clients. These are things that's benevolent sexism. Statistically, it's there. But these are things, again, that impact equity. It's looking at the job description. Are things in your job description there that don't need to be there? Just based, again, on dominant supremacy culture. Are these requirements the requirements that are really needed to do the job or do we just toss them in there from a place of bias Um, and it's saying, okay, and then even do we need this job function and who can fulfill it? And we have that avatar of who can fulfill it. 
but usually again, that's informed by dominant culture. So it's looking at, and all these things, it's actually not even falling within, um, you know, your, your checkbox training or what the culture committee can do. This is how you're operating. It's what's the escalation point that somebody does feel that they're experiencing a microaggression that is really a form of workplace violence. How, where do they go to, to express this? Is there an escalation point specifically for these things with somebody that possesses the competency to fix them? Or do you create a, a, a papered file for that employee and say, what you said is really scary to us. So as opposed to us actually looking at this claim, you got to get out. And so it's, it's taking all of those things um, and they're, they're operational functions, right? It's 100% operational functions. Well, absolutely. And bringing in that psychological safety that allows transparency, that allows the feedback, that allows the growth. Yeah. Because they can't grow and expand and learn if, if they're not getting the feedback and if they haven't created a safe place to be able to give that feedback. Exactly. So what, what are you seeing? Like, uh, I think now people are really starting to be more aware of these things. Uh, and are, are you seeing progress? I'm seeing thoughtfulness, right? We're not going to see progress for, I don't believe, at least a decade. Um, I think that companies and corporate leaders being thoughtful about these things is a sign of progress. But if I had to, um, you know, qualify, is there progress being made right now? I don't, I don't think we'll see it. Um, you know, it's, it's been great because I am seeing corporate leaders um, start to say, we actually need to bring more intersectional identities to the table um, to have these discussions. And so it could be small things, which are actually very large. We want to craft, um, a belonging statement at our firm. And we want to bring in the people that we want to feel make, include to the table as we facilitate a process of crafting a belonging statement. Um, organizations are saying we want to craft strategic pillars really around how we operationalize equity. And that strategic pillar could be um, raising awareness about implicit bias. That strategic pillar could be um, cultural competency. It could be all these things, but it's bringing new voices to the table and saying, this is what we're going, what we're going to do. It's boards of directors too, um, saying, okay, we wanna actually, you know, obviously we, we don't wanna be weeds down into the, the work that everybody's doing. They can't do that, but saying, we want KPIs that we're holding executive leaders accountable to that reflect equity. And it's not saying, well, we want to increase our diverse hires by 3%. Because if you can't retain a diverse hire, don't further traumatize them by trying to hit that number. But it's saying we want metrics that make sense. And so the board of directors is like, nope, we're going to tie compensation to the achievement of these metrics. And these metrics are going to be equity centered, which we're looking at retention. We're looking at you know some other measurements to determine um, if equity is, is truly being achieved. Um, and so I, I'm seeing that dial being moved where people are being very thoughtful about these things. These are organizations that have, that have um, been around for, for years and even organizations rethinking um, um, their idea of what supremacy culture is. I think we have this, um, this dramatized view of supremacy, right? We think Archie Bunker, 
we think the KKK. And yes, that is a flagship of supremacy. Yes. However, supremacy culture is the stuff we deal with every day. Um, you know, I use an example, when you go to a hotel and you have those nice amenities, the cute little shampoo and conditioner, guess what? People with porous hair can't use that. It's too drying and there's not enough of it. And so it's even thinking about where dominant culture shows up in daily activities. It's like, you know, I had a hotel client and I said, you have excluded an entire group of people just within your amenities. You've said, we don't see you. So just think about this. Like if you just simply added to your little card that says, if you need a shaver or toothpaste, toothbrush, call the front desk. Why don't you just add a sentence that says, or if you need a, a, an ethnic hair care product, call the front desk. And they were like, I was like, just these little things is the prevalence and vastness of, of supremacy culture. Um, and it's, it's those things that we can do that are, are seemingly small, but like, think about that. Like what a colossal difference these things makes for our lived experience. Absolutely. And I've, I've heard you say that before and it really struck me when you said that. And, and I, uh, you know, that's something I wouldn't even think of. So we really need the voices at the table to bring this information to light and so that we can be aware and bring in these, these equitable services for all people. It's key. It's key. It's, it's mission critical at this point. And I think that too is where a lot of organizations have uh, missed the mark is that these voices are not brought in for whatever reason. Um, they're not brought in, you know, there's, I see executive teams to this day and it's, you know, the same, the same mic, no, nothing bad about mics. I love mics, but it's the same, <laughs> it's the same mic. And so it's like, you've got to do more to, to get the voices in the room. And then you've got to do your internal work to keep them there and value their opinions. So, cause this thing, uh, it was, I, I worked with a client who's like, well, I thought we would see a, a shift quicker. I said, this isn't a software integration, right? A software integration is like, we're moving to this new software from this software. Here's the spreadsheet. We're going to get a consultant on to manage the integration. Boom, six months. So I was like, this isn't a software integration, right? This is a whole mental, moral heart as well reset. And I said, at the point that you're working with the head, the heart, then the cogs that make the system go, I was like, this isn't, this takes time, a lot of time. Um, and he was like, I guess you're right. I'm like, yeah, you don't think about this like a systems integration. This is um, an entire cultural shift. Yeah. And we're carrying 13 generations of trauma within this cultural shift that we're fighting against. So I'm like, be kind to yourself, still do the work. Yeah, it's a big job, like exercise compassion. Yeah. And one of the things that you're doing that I mentioned earlier that I want to bring up is you're bringing all different children to the table and yeah. educating them. And I'm so passionate about what you're doing with that. And it's such a beautiful program. And, and how did that, how was that born? I mean, you know, I believe that they are our future and that. Yeah. So last summer when everything happened, it was like literally, what was it in February? It was Ahmaud Arbery. 
uh, March, it was Brianna Taylor. And this was within weeks of each other. Because I think this was uh, um, Ahmaud Arbery was at the end of February. Then maybe two or three weeks later, it was uh, Brianna Taylor. And then immediately following that, it was um, George Floyd. And so I am big. I have a son, an 11-year-old son. I have a six-year-old daughter. And so we we jogged the two, I believe it was 2.3 miles, 2.34 miles for Mont Arbery. And I said, let's, let's do this. I said, because one of, one of our people, right, was slain just while jogging. And so it, it, and let's just take a moment just to reflect on, on his life and what could have been. And so my son's like, well, why? Because he was black, like you, like me, like your dad, like our entire family, um, because he was black. Then Breonna Taylor happened. And, you know, my daughter says, well, what happened? And I said, well, um, racism, right? She is a no-knock warrant. Um, those isms, right? Those prejudices, those stereotypes, that fear, all of that combined. And it turned into a heinous ass assassination of a, of a sleeping girl. Um, and she says, well, why again? I said, well, because... She was black and some, for some reason, black people scare the hell out of white people. And I don't know, <laughs> it's all I got for you. And so then the thing that shook the nation, um, George Floyd, um, and my son goes again. Um, but this one, you know, was something that we really were paying attention to um, in the nation. And there was so many demonstrations that made a colossal difference, right? We'll be reading about this in history. And so I was like, I can't look at my, at my, at my children again and just march. And um, I too, though, am a believer that, okay, you can't boil the ocean with these difficult problems. So you have to play within your sphere of genius. And so I did my best again, told I look at problems and I try to find solutions. And I said, well, where can you find the most impact? And um, and recently, one of my good friend's sons had graduated and he's brilliant and his peers are brilliant. And I'm like, God, you guys might have it figured out as far as changing this nation when it comes to equity and racism and, you know, accepting LGBTQIA plus and all this stuff. You guys do it beautifully. You integrate everyone. And I was like, so if you guys in the next 10 years are leading everything, you guys need a strong bench. And so I want to give you the strong bench. And so I was like, well, let me create... Um, uh, a critical race curriculum of sorts for kids. Cause we don't learn this stuff. You learn about Martin Luther King, Rosa Parks, a little bit about Harriet Tubman. We don't learn this stuff in school. Um, and so I said, I want to design a curriculum to create that bench for the kiddos that graduated in 2020 and, you know, the, these next classes. And the, I thought the best way I could do it was um, by creating Youth United University. And so it's um, last summer, it was a summer virtual five week cohort where we looked at race foundationally um, in America as a con, because this is very unique. People from any other country are like, wait, we've got, you know, caste systems or things like that. But the way that whiteness is experienced in America is amazing to anybody else. I'm like, let's really dig into racism in America and how it's been systematized. Um, and so that's what we do. And so last summer we graduated 60 kids um, in the summer cohort. And then we were blessed to be able to go into Aurora Public Schools. I'm into one school, Aurora Quest. We graduated 40 kids. So now I'm over 100. And this summer we have about 60 kids. We're running two curriculum. We're running um, the foundational race curriculum for um, new students. But for the graduating students, we're doing a deep dive, a deep systems dive 
where like, so last week they learned about um, the systematization of racism in education. And so we brought a, a, a subject matter expert to talk about, you know, our American education system came from Prussia in the you know 18th century from a guy named Horace Mann. He created it based on that system and, and brought it over to the States. Um, and let's talk about the evolution of that. And so we're gonna be talking about education. We've already done that. We'll be speaking about the system of um, um, government. We've got um, a Senator coming in to address the, the kids and share with them. We'll be doing a deep dive on um, banking and finance. We've got a brilliant, brilliant woman talking about that. We'll be discussing healthcare and, and how all of these things kind of compound. And then we'll also be discussing um, criminal justice and they'll be hearing from um, a police officer and someone who's created a whole organization to reskill people who are criminal justice involved. And so looking at that system critically, asking hard questions, um, and it's amazing to hear the kids have a solution. Um, last Tuesday, a young lady said, you know what I can do? Um, and we said, well, what can you do? She said, I'm gonna ask my principal who is choosing the curriculum in the school? And then if she doesn't give me the answer, I'm gonna ask the parent teacher organization, who is choosing the curriculum? And why aren't kids learning the full story? I said, whoa. You get it. All right. You get it. <laughs> yeah. But empowering them to have the, the confidence and the information to be able to ask those good questions yeah. in a respectful and positive way. I mean, there's curriculum that, that we need to be integrating in so many areas and even what you mentioned about finance and banking and all of those things, those aren't taught either. No. So that's incredible that you're doing that. Thank you. It's definitely, it is hard work. Um, every year, it's so funny. I start it and I'm like feeling good. We get probably on the eve of the first class and I'm like, oh, is it over? Just because you want it to be perfect. You want everything to be. And so I'm just like, okay, this is meaningful. We're making a difference. We're kind of planning for next year, but whoa, this is a lot of responsibility. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But what a great way to build. I love that term, build the bench, mm -hmm. because we've got to support the learning and the, the just like kind of like you were talking about within a corporation, the safe space for them to be able to have all of these conversations in an open, yeah. accepting way. And so that they can come up with just like her, you know, kudos to her, just, just allowing them. One of the things I like about your program is, is teaching them to just think. Yeah. And rather than like jam a belief system down their throat, like, Let's think about what are the possibilities that mm -hmm. we can create. I mean, this future is, is ours. And to let yeah. them know that, you know, the way the world looks is up to them so that they can understand that, that they are, they have a right and that their voice needs to be heard 
and respected and honored and that they have the courage to speak like that. I just, I love that. Yeah. It it's, and these kids are brilliant. You know, I think that's been the biggest takeaway too. You know, whatever bar you raise for young people and young minds, they will exceed it. It's incredible. A friend of mine has an autistic daughter and I have heard him say on multiple occasions that she has taught him more than any of the college PhD curriculum that he's taken because she has that different perspective mm-hmm. that grows the solution yeah, and expands the possibilities in so many different directions. And that's what we need to do is create forums where we can be able to share different perspectives and then focus on where do we want to go that's in alignment with our values that that gets the the cumulative forum the results that they that they're wanting to get to and I just yeah. applaud all your work in that area because you've done so much oh thank you I mean I just you know I want to make an impact that's meaningful yes you definitely have and how did you, uh, like, talk to me a little bit about growing up. Like, what, what, who, t- how did you learn? I mean, what, how did you learn all of this? You know, I had an, a unique upbringing. So I, I was raised by a single mom. My um, parents divorced when I was two. And I I had no contact um, with with my father. He ghosted. Um, and so, you know, that was tough, right? We didn't have a lot of, of money at all. Um, my mom worked in education and, you know, she, she loves me, um, a whole bunch. Um, and I'm an only child, so it was just my mom and I, so I think only children, um, take on a lot of adulting. And I think probably only children that are raised by a single mom, um, take on a whole lot of adulting, right? Because you're privy to stuff that, that normal kids aren't privy to, right? Like you're not, normal six-year-olds don't know that you're having issues with your light bill or um, <laughs> they just, they don't have to, you know, I was the, the co-conspirator in, in solving for very critical day-to-day problems. Um, and so that really kind of supported me in growing up very quickly, um, but, but having just a different view um, on things and, you know, making certain decisions, you know, like I, I'm going to go to college. I'm going to get an amazing job. I'm, you know, I, my mom worked like three jobs. I'm like, I don't, I don't want to work that hard. I want to work hard, but I want to work hard at something I love. And, um, you know, it just, you know, combating those things, right? Like when I go to the grocery store, I don't want to have to have a calculator, um, as I'm tallying up the grocery tab and having to run and put things back. Like I want to, if I want to buy the, the Klondike bars, I want to buy the Klondike bars. And so really that was instilled in me very early on was just to try and figure that out. And then a huge blessing to me was um, my grandparents are phenomenal. They really, really helped to raise me and, and still um, it's interesting to think about mindset. So we didn't have money, um, but they instilled in me um, an abundance and a wealth mindset, which I think is, you know, when you think about it, a very different mind state from a scarcity mind state. Um, and that was invaluable. So my grandmother 
is, is way, way, way beyond her time. She is a business mogul. Um, and she just figured it out. You know, she um, graduated high school when she was 15. She was in Texas. She actually came to Colorado at that time because she got a full ride academic scholarship to the Colorado Women's College at the time. She showed up on the first day of school and they dismissed her. Um, and they said, well, we didn't know you were black. And so she was thousands of miles, obviously, away from home, thinking that she was going to get a college education. And we still have the letter from the Colorado Women's College where they said, uh-oh, you showed up to class. You can't come in this classroom. Um, you're a black lady. And so at from 15, she had to figure it out, right? Like, it wasn't like she could call home and get an airplane and say, hey, mom and dad. So she started working and, and really started mastering business, like from that early stage. Um, and then she met my grandfather who was in World War II. She met him via my great-grandfather, who's um, George Morrison Sr. There's a park um, in, in Five Points, right across from Cole Middle School, named after him. He um, brought jazz to the state of Colorado. So um, she met him because he was a big deal in the community. And he was like, you're striking. You need to marry my son when he gets back from the from the war. And so she did. Um, and so my grandfather is, um, he treated me as his own child. Um, he was my father figure, best friend, um, you know, made me feel safe in communicating freely. Like it was amazing because he really made me feel seen, um, made me feel comfortable in all my quirks, um, taught me to drive. I mean, like they were such forces in my life. And he worked in education. Um, he was college educated and he worked in Denver public schools for years and years, assistant superintendent, first black man to be the um, president of the board for at the time Denver public schools credit union. And he instilled so many values um, just about love and, and working from a place of love and community um, because that's what he did. He loved kids and education and he loved church. He loved God. He woke up at seven every morning and played the violin at shorter church he would take me with him in tow. Um, and so it was amazing to watch him be such a powerful man um, and not do it with an iron fist and lead with love. And I think that was something that was always instilled in me. Um, and then my aunt is like, oh my gosh, she's the first black um, sergeant at arms um, to ever serve in the White House. And so she went on. It was amazing. I've always admired the fact that she you know, left the nest and just was so bold in like trailblazing what she wanted to do. And so a part of that, like, how do you get back up and have that resilience? You know, it was amazing to be able to see someone who unapologetically lived their life and created the life that they wanted to live. And so she lived on the East Coast for uh, nearly 40 years. And so I'd spend a ton of time um, on the East Coast with her. Um, and it was just amazing, right? Because it's so drastically different from Denver. And that was incredibly inspiring to see a woman, a black woman on the cover of Jet Magazine. Um, you know, I used to get to go and hang out in Richard Nixon's um, <laughs> in, his, in his office and, um, and, do, and learn all of that. And, 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 you know, my family was really deep into politics. Um, and so really be able to understand, again, systems and how that worked. My grandparents were, were blockbusters. They had um, crosses burn on their front lawns when they were the first black family to move into Park Hill. Um, and so even hearing those stories, and again, it's like, okay, that's that resilience, right? Like that's the thing in your DNA. Like 
you know, you, you didn't have a cross burned on your lawn. <laughs> you weren't told you couldn't go to college because you were black and you were a young kid sent here. So it's like, hell yeah, Simone, you can, you can deal with the microaggression from your boss today. Um, it hurts, but yeah, others did it. Um, and that's, that's in your DNA. And so that those things are incredible stories. And, you know, I'm so fortunate to have had in this lifetime, all of that, um, infused in me and, um, really having the opportunity to view life from a place of abundance. And, you know, you can, you can do anything, you can have anything, you can, you know, forge ahead and create a path. If there is no path, you can get your shovel and you can create that path. And um, I, I have to say, I'm so thankful for that. And I, I see it show up every single day um, and, you know, doing business creatively. And, you know, if you tell me no, I'm like, okay, moving on. Um, and so, so I'm beyond blessed for that. Yes, you are. And one of the things that's beautiful too, about what you said is they, they didn't, they didn't even like quitting or failing or stopping. It didn't, I mean, that wasn't an option. <laughs> yeah. So that doesn't ever even enter your mind. Like, you have to be so, so solution focused that, that there, I mean, it's like a radar beam. I mean, you're going to find it because that's all that is, it's, it's essential to living. So the solution is either find the solution or die. So I, I yeah. came up very similar to that. And, and I had a discussion with someone recently about that and, and there was no option to not, there was, there was failure. There was learning exactly you know, from the things that you went through, but everything that didn't work, you took a nugget out of that yep. made the next thing better. And that's that kind of abundance and possibility mindset. That is, it's what you're doing now in supporting the kids and teaching them that life is what you make it and you have to, you know, live for your values and have boundaries and that you are, you are unlimited. You yeah. Know? Well, I mean, even think about that too, in the context of business, right. And when we think about it from an equity lens in the context of oppression, that is a hundred percent of scarcity mindset and thinking that if you keep an entire group from accessing opportunity, capital, um, network, all of those things, um, that that just enhances your power. It's such a short-term thing. And so even when we, when I'm working with um, executives in uncovering um, supremacy culture in their organization and rebuilding it um, to, to be equitable, it's also saying, well, let's talk about how your scarcity mindset is impacting your business. Because this was all built from scarcity, where you say there's not enough out there for us. So we've got to create this supremacist ideology that we allow to infiltrate every single thing we do because we are so fearful of someone else being a part of this thing that we built. That is the craziest thing I've ever heard. And so now as demographics are shifting, which I think is a huge um, catalyst for um, businesses wanting to make changes and wanting to learn and grow. It's like, no, you're thinking about things from a place of scarcity. You're literally by keeping BIPOC groups 
out of your organization, you are turning away from $6 trillion worth of spending power. $6 trillion. That's a big number. And that was $6 trillion as of 2018. So I'm pretty sure right now we're probably at least, we've at least doubled that. And so it's too, it's like, let's think about that. Oppression is, comes from a place of scarcity and fear. And you gotta, you got to get over that. Absolutely. And I just want to wrap up by saying what well, I love your saying, ignite the light. Yes. And so thank you so much. It's so, it rings so true to my heart because of like shining your light. Oh and yeah. Just being that and creating that space for people to be seen and heard and to be valued because that's where the abundance is within your organization. Mm-hmm. It is in your people. So the better you get at cultivating and creating that space and that culture for your people, the more innovation, creativity, possibility, unlimited potential that you tap into. And that's where the abundance mindset comes in. So thank you so much for being with me today. I just thank you much. And just thank you for all you're doing and for all you're doing with kids and Tell them really quick your website where they, I put all the information in the show notes so they can get in touch with you, but um, let them know you're Simone Ross. Yeah. So you can find me at Simone-Ross.com. That's my website. Sign up for my newsletter. I try and put juicy stuff in there. Um, I have some exciting announcements too over the coming weeks. So sign up for the newsletter. You can follow me on Instagram. I'm Simone D. Ross. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn, Simone D. Ross, Facebook, Simone D. Ross. Apparently I am just Simone D. Ross. <laughs> well, thank you so much. And I look forward to spending more time with you and we'll have to do this again and talk about some of the other amazing things you're doing. So thank you so much. And thank you, our listeners. Thank you for giving them all this great information. And we will be back again next week. Thank you.